The following podcast contains a bit of explicit material, but much, much more that is not explicit, just as a percentage. It's Wednesday, February 3rd, 2021. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, we brought you the news of the arrest of Aung San Suu Kyi in a coup in her country of Myanmar, but I failed to relay the exact charge. Of course, if I related over, say, a system of closed radio handsets, I might be, if not insensitive, even possibly compounding the offense because Aung San Suu Kyi was charged with here. Bloomberg has the news. In Myanmar, the military has charged former civilian leader Aung San Suu Kyi with breaking an import-export law. She could end up with a three-year prison term. Illegally imported walkie-talkies were found in her home. Yes, walkie-talkies. And not a huge cache of walkie-talkies. Reportedly 10, or to break this down for the layman, five walkies, five talkies. This is obviously a ruse. I mean, she probably did have the walkie-talkies. That doesn't seem like an outlandish thing to have. The ruse is that it's a trumped-up charge to get her off the chessboard of Myanmar politics. This is how coups go. It's a ruse and then a coup. The ruse-coup connection is a strong one. It is a sad story when a political activist can be detained under a law that quite pathetically frets over people's access to technology Oh, by the way, in America, Rebecca Jones, the Florida state statistician, former state statistician, who went rogue out of concern that Florida was putting its thumb on the coronavirus statistics and downplaying the severity of the data. Rebecca Jones has been officially charged with a crime. I will now read to you the official charge. One count of offenses against users of computers, computer systems, computer networks, and electronic devices. Oh, computer, have I offended thee? Are you saying a simple Control-Alt-Delete is not going to get me out of this one this time? Come on, what do you say? Just for old time's sake. Rebecca Jones voluntarily turns herself in after a nearly nearly cross-country road trip. She took him down with coronavirus along the way. As far as Aung San Suu Kyi and her two-way radios, which carry a three-way sentence, given the ban on serving in government upon conviction of a crime, we can say her political career at the end of this sentence, will be very much like the end of a sentence on a walkie-talkie. Over. On the show today, let's stay in, if not the criminal realm, the world of crime and consequences, a deep dive into the exculpatory arguments attending to the impeachment trial of Trump. But first, so what I like to do, and I've trained myself into this habit, is not to get obsessed with the day-to-day machinations of political infighting. I always zoom out. There's the basic level analysis. Ask yourself, as I do, who stands to gain? What are their motivations? And then I like to get a bit more nuanced than that to ask yourself, why are the players acting in the way they're acting? You begin to see conflicts in a new light. Take, for instance, the Republican Party. A one-day analysis, oh, they're beholden to the Trump faction within their base. That's true. Zoom out a little. Well, let's consider the incentives for the individuals within the party. They worry much more about threats from primary challenges as opposed to general elections. True, true, true. But if we go out more, a lot more, we get to the realm of a political thinker and legal thinker who I've been reading, Jack Balkin. And what Balkin has done is... He has looked at history as a cycle, and he notes that we are, right now, it would seem, 
quite likely at the end of a cycle, and that cycle being one of Republican dominance. There have only been fewer than half a dozen cycles. We may be getting a new one, and it all depends on if Democrats can show themselves to be capable legislators. So this is an idea that has intrigued me, the possible end of Republican dominance, a time with historical echoes, and a period which comports well with the idea of cycles of constitutional time. The author of that book, of that name, Jack Balkin, is up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A few months before the election, I was listening to a podcast hosted by a friend of mine, Julian Zelazar and Sam Wong, Politics and Polls. I recommend you to it. And Jack Balkin, the Yale professor, was on talking about his books, The Cycles of Constitutional Time. And I thought to myself, this could all be happening. Everything that Professor Balkin is predicting might well come true. Now, this interview was in September, and I put it in the back of my mind to November. And from then, November to now, I've gone through my own cycles of time. I've said it is happening. It's not happening. We've regressed. We've progressed. So here joining me now is Jack Balkin, the Knight Professor of Constitutional Law and the First Amendment at Yale Law School. We're going to talk about where he thinks we are in this constitutional cycle, how to think about the moment in terms of Republican politics. And then I want to pivot on another area of expertise, which is related, which is platforming and deplatforming in the First Amendment. Professor Balkin, welcome. Ah, uh, it's nice to be here. So your book talks about many cycles, but I think we're focused, as we are in our current cycle, and you point out that the Republican Party might be at a precipice that has resonance with the past. Can you get into that a little bit? Well, there are three cycles relevant here. One is, in American politics, there are long periods when one of the parties tends to dominate politics and set the agenda for politics. Doesn't win all the elections, but it basically structures what's possible in politics. And uh, when I when I was growing up, 
uh, we were under what I call the New Deal civil rights regime. It goes from about 19, 1930s to just about the end of the 70s. And then in 1980s, in the 1980s, you begin a new regime uh, in which the Republican Party is dominant and uh, the conservative movement calls the tune in American politics. I call that the Reagan regime. And that's been going on now really since the 80s, so about 40 or so years. And uh, now it looks like it's coming to a close. By the way, this idea about regimes is not original with me. Uh, my colleague at Yale, Steve Skoranek, has written very important books about these ideas. But I thought it was very important to pay attention to what Skoranek was saying and to combine that with two different other ideas. One is that there's actually a very, very long cycle of polarization and depolarization in American politics. That is, we live in a very polarized time, but it always hasn't been that way. In the middle of the 20th century, politics very depolarized. And then the third cycle is a cycle, sort of episodes, if you will, of rot, constitutional rot, in which Republican and Democratic uh, features of our government sort of break down. And they're followed by periods of renewal. Where we are now is very simple. We seem to be at the end of a long dominance of the Republican Party and the Reagan era in which the conservative movement sets the basic tone for politics. That seems to be going away slowly. We're at a hugely powerful cycle of polarization, which we haven't seen like since the Civil War, really. I mean, it's just that bad. And we're in the depths of a terrible episode of rot in which our institutions uh, are basically decaying and in which the kind of trust and cooperation necessary for a republic to keep going has really been eaten away. So I'll concede those last two points, rot and polarization. But let's talk about Republican dominance. What is it? Five of the last seven presidential elections, at least by popular vote, has gone to Democrats. And I understand we have a constitution and how the rules work. But if the popular sentiment isn't necessarily behind Republicans, you know, to the degree that the popular sentiment was Jacksonian from 28 to 60 or was with an FDR New Deal way of thinking from when he was elected until Reagan. So if the popular sentiment isn't there, can we really be said to be in a period of republicanism, full stop? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because remember, it doesn't matter what popular sentiment is. What matters is how the electoral structures work. And so even though, in fact, the Democrats have repeatedly won popular electoral majorities in uh, presidential elections, since uh, really since uh, uh, Bill Clinton, very often they don't get the White House. That's because of the Electoral College. It's twice in the last 16 years or so, oh, I'm sorry, last 20 uh, years or so, the Electoral College winner has not been the popular vote winner each time the Republicans won. Republicans have had strong advantages in the Senate and in the House. Uh, they've had enormous uh, advantages in control of states and state governments, and that also affects uh, legislative redistricting. They've had enormous dominance in the federal judiciary. So if you think about all the different levers of power, I think it's pretty clear to say that the Republican Party has been the dominant party in the United States until very recently. I think things are starting to change. We won't be sure for a while, but there are obvious signs that the Republican Party has lost its dominance. Uh, first of all, you mentioned they're having real problems putting together national electoral majorities at the presidential level. The party is in the midst of a civil war. That civil war was uh, uh, was papered over during uh, Trump's presidency, but now that he's gone, it's it's broken out again. Uh, that weakens the party, and it makes it very difficult for it to succeed. But the thing to understand, the thing to understand, the thing to look for in the future, if you want to know if we've really made a break, is this. Biden won a substantial victory, but he didn't have much in the way of coattails. Democrats kept the House, barely got control of the Senate, 
But the real question is this, will they be able to translate their momentary political power into long-term dominance? And in order to do that, they have to get their arms around the federal government. In order to do that, they have to change the rules of the filibuster. There's just no way around it. If they don't do that, then they will be unable to do many of the things they need to basically create a new regime in politics. So what happens to the Republican Party from here? There are any number of possibilities. One possibility is they regroup. They become a Trumpist party. So this is a sort of a party that's organized around whiteness, conservative Christianity, uh, bare-knuckled capitalism, authoritarianism. And that becomes what the Republican Party is. And it runs candidates. It continues to be very strong in the South and parts of, of the Mountain West. And occasionally it wins the presidency. The second possibility is that the Republican Party is in a protracted civil war, which weakens it and makes it very difficult for it to win very many elections. The third possibility is that you get breakaway uh, movements within the party who field candidates in, in certain parts uh, of the country. But third parties don't tend to last in the United States because of our representational system. So it seems that under all those scenarios, either a regional party or a fractionalized party, the Democrats are ascendant. Uh, they are if they are able to uh, pass legislation. So remember, if the Democrats fail to solve the problem of the pandemic, if they fail to solve the problem of the economic contraction, then in fact, they'll lose the next several elections because they will have been demonstrated to be failures. They'll have blown their chance. But they can't really do that, and they can't actually reform our representational systems, pass a new Voting Rights Act, uh, to uh, clean up um, politics, uh, you know, deal with uh, various ways of cons uh, restricting the franchise. They can't do that unless they get rid of the filibuster. They don't have enough power in the Senate to pass that kind of legislation. It's true they can deal with uh, the pandemic through reconciliation. Doesn't require getting around the filibuster. But there are so many more things they have to do to clean up politics. And for that, they really have to get rid of the filibuster. Is it in the interest of the sort of Republican who is dismayed by Trumpism, didn't participate in the uh, in the House in the mass vote to question election results? I'm not necessarily saying Adam Kinzinger or one of those 10, but people close to that, maybe Rob Portman if he had decided to stay. What's in their interest? To block Democratic legislation? I think that seems to be what's worked for them in the past. Or is it more in their interest to let Democrats have wins? No, I think their current interest is to uh, show to the public that Democrats can't effectively govern. Can't. Uh, cannot. I mean, that's mm. why you're going to get Republican opposition, both from the Trumpists and the traditional Republicans, because they realize that if the Democrats were able to successfully govern and remake representational systems, pass a new Voting Rights Act, uh, pass H.R. 1, uh, it would uh, tilt uh, the playing field in the favor of the Democrats. And it would be even more difficult for Republicans to uh, gain power once again. So the Trumpists and the traditional Republicans are kind of thrown together uh, because of these problems. And But this just shows you how important it is for the Democratic Party to realize that it's been handed an opportunity that does not come around very often to forge a new political regime in which their agenda is the dominant agenda of politics. They could easily blow this.
Have you changed your mind from election day to the period afterwards where maybe it didn't look like there would be a mass rebellion and Trumpism would be abating till now where it does seem that uh, Trumpism is on the rise? Have you gone on a little roller coaster ride at all? I think the thing that's, that's, that I've had to recalibrate is how deeply, deeply we've fallen into a period of constitutional rot. In other words, you know, I compare this to the first Gilded Age, which is a very cynical and corrupt time. Uh, it's worse than the first Gilded Age. And our institutions are in much more danger than they have been uh, at, in most uh, parts of our country's history. Things really are on a knife's edge. It's really, really important for people to step up now and, and preserve their democracy. I think the events of the last month and a half demonstrated how seriously damaged our institutions have become and how important it is to repair them. Well, I had known about your thoughts and read your book, but I thought that with a large repudiation of uh, Trump and that project, that we might be seeing a different result. I know you think in cycles, but cycles are marked by and defined by bits of information and inflection points. So what, I, what I'm saying is I thought the election might have been an inflection point. Here, I'm going to disagree with you. If you look at periods of transition like our own, what you discover is you don't just flip a switch and then everybody basically comes over to the, to the new regime. In fact, what you have is a protracted struggle. So here are my examples. Reconstruction. During the Reconstruction period, the South does not just give up. It does not just simply say, okay, we'll do it your name, your way now, Republicans. Quite the contrary. It's a period of violence and terrorism. It's a period of, of destruction and lynching. It's what leads to a protracted war between uh, grants and parts of the United States, even after the Civil War is over. It takes a very, very long time for this to die down. And indeed, part of the, one of the ways it dies down is that the South gets a lot of what it wanted. Uh, Reconstruction is only partially successful. Or take the New Deal. It's not that when we wake up one day in 1933 and Roosevelt's president and everybody says, oh, I guess we're going to follow FDR. No, quite the contrary. You have the rise of the Liberty League, which is a kind of uh, a ancestor of the Tea Party. You have all sorts of uh, attacks and uh, uh, mobilizations against Roosevelt and what he's trying to do. And indeed, Roosevelt himself is not completely successful at what he tries to do. And he, he miscalculates in 1938 and he basically wrecks his chances for further uh, domestic reforms. So it's really important to understand that even if the Democrats become the dominant party and are able to create a new regime, there'll be bitter, bitter resistance from the other side for a fairly long time to come. So while I have you for a second, could you just lay out your insight about this, I think, maybe thornier than people are realizing, conundrum of how to regulate free speech and what to do with the tensions between what we're seeing, that there are many people using our using platforms to destabilize the country, and yet, on the other hand, we have a strong First Amendment tradition in America. So what's your triangle-based insight? The important thing about the digital age is that the owners of private infrastructure, Amazon, uh, web hosting services, and the search engines, and uh, social media, they're the basic infrastructure free expression. It's all privately owned. And the governance of free expression uh, through this infrastructure is done by private parties. That's the most important thing to understand about our world. And so the state is only one of the regulators of speech. The infrastructure is the other major regulator of speech. And so uh, 
if uh, the way in which the 20th century imagined the problem was, if there's a problem, it has to do with the government's relation to speakers. That's not how it works anymore. It's the government's relation to infrastructure and both of their relationship to speakers. So it's a more complicated model of how it works. So let's take deplatforming, which you mentioned. The federal government is not, does not deplatform people. States don't deplatform people. Deplatforming occurs when you're kicked off of social media companies, uh, facilities, according to their rules. And so that's an action by a private party which doesn't raise issues of the First Amendment at all. It raises free speech issues, but not First Amendment issues. There are a lot of free speech issues that have nothing to do with the First Amendment. The First Amendment is about the government regulating your speech. Deplatforming is a problem uh, to the extent that people are shut out from communicating to other folks. If they have no other alternatives for communication, it's a serious problem. And if uh, platforms get very, very large and essentially dominate public discussion, then it's very important that, to worry about the rules they use to regulate speech because, in a sense, they're the, 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 the central player in town, if you will. But it's also important to understand that the solutions to any problems you might see don't consist necessarily in the government passing laws to ban certain forms of speech. That's not the best way of understanding what's going on. Rather, you have to ask, how do you want to organize the private infrastructure of communications so that lots of people get to speak, the people who run the infrastructure are responsible, they act in a professional manner, and they basically look out for the public interest. That's the central thing you want to get to. Our basic problem today is that, at least at the layer of the social media companies, uh, social media companies are, uh, there's one very, very large social media company, it's called Facebook. It's too large. It's not adequately able to handle all of the responsibilities to the public that it has taken on by being the world's largest social media company. And its business model basically is at war with the public interest. Let me put it to you this way. There are two sides of Facebook. One side of Facebook are content moderation people. I've met these people. They're wonderful people. They're very nice. Uh, they're very professional. They think deeply about what the public interest is. And what they do is they put out fires. Uh, they look for terrorist recruitment. They look for child pornography. They look for disinformation about elections, about COVID, about all these things. These are wonderful people. They're very nice people. They get a lot of flack. They're trying to do their best. Okay. Beneath them are armies and armies of content moderators who basically have three seconds to make decisions and they can't possibly do their jobs. And also uh, artificial intelligence agents that are imperfect and will never be perfect and will never do what they are supposed to do. So that's the content moderation side of Facebook. They put out fires. The other side of Facebook is what actually makes money for Facebook, which is the advertising system and the algorithmic system that basically drives the advertising, makes the advertising system pay money. That side of Facebook starts fires. So you have a company, one half of which is devoted to putting out fires, and the other half is devoted to starting fires. Now, that is no way uh, to basically run a social media system. But that's what we have. Jack Balkin is Knight Professor of Constitutional Law and the First Amendment at Yale. 
and he has written a book called The Cycles of Constitutional Time. You know, a great benefit of talking to smart people is not always solutions, but just new frameworks to look at it. And I think you've given us a couple of those today. So thank you very much. My pleasure. And now the spiel. To be fair to Trump's lawyers, they were hired only a couple days ago. Also, they spell United States correctly more often than they misspell it. Their filing begins to the honorable members of the United States Senate. And really nothing unites state senates more than baseless claims of election fraud and the possibility of maybe an insurrection right there in their buildings also. You know, that's the funny thing about the United States of Amerigo. Unites West, we stand, and biped, we tall. Also, and to be very, very fair to them, to bend over backwards, let's acknowledge that if they totally blow this case and can't sway such unbiased jurors as Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, and even jury foreman Mitch McConnell, it won't be their worst screw-up ever. Because one of them, Bruce Castor, was the DA of Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, and he declined to charge Bill Cosby in 2005. Cosby would go on not only to evade prosecution for more than a decade, but also be accused by other women of further sexual assaults. Great job there. His co-counsel, David Schoen, was meeting with Jeffrey Epstein up until the time of Epstein's death, a death which Schoen says probably wasn't suicide. You know what? I got to say, that theory is more plausible than the one that he and his co-counsel have advanced on the part of their client, the president, which is, according to a rather brief brief, that Donald Trump wasn't inciting anything. And to admonish him for his words is to weaken the First Amendment. And anyway, it's not constitutional to have a trial for someone who's no longer in office. Now, that last point, they have agreement, it would seem, from 45 Republican senators, which really, really lessens the pressure on them to bring it with all the other stuff. And I got to say, the other stuff is quite weak. It really does reflect a lack of urgency to be logical or compelling. Here's one phrase. Under the convenient guise of the COVID-19 pandemic safeguards, state election laws and procedures were changed by local politicians or judges. That'll win hearts and minds. And then they quote one of the charges Trump is facing. This is from the impeachment articles. Shortly before the joint session commenced, President Trump addressed a crowd at the Capitol Ellipse in Washington, D.C. There he reiterated false claims that, quote, we won this election and we won it by a landslide. Here's their answer to that, that clause from the articles of impeachment. To the extent that averment five, that's what it is, it's an averment, alleges his opinion is factually an error, and I believe it does allege that. Let's go back to what it says. He repeated the false claims. So yes, I would say the extent that it alleges the statement was an error was the full extent. Anyway, they go on. That's, by the way, called a tell when, they, when someone calls it a false claim. They go on. To the extent that it alleges his opinion is factually an error, the 45th president denies the allegation. Boom. <laughs> Good night, nurse. You nailed it. I also enjoyed this gem. Should this body, the Senate, not act in favor of the 45th president, the precedent set by the House of Representatives would become that such persons as the 45th president, similarly situated, no longer enjoy the rights of all American citizens guaranteed by the Bill of Rights. 
Yes, such persons as the 45th president. What such persons as the 45th president exist? Maybe one day the 46th president will stumble into inspiring a coup against his own government two weeks before he leaves office. I guess that could happen. Not even Trump's children, be they Eric, Ivanka, or 45th president Jr., by whom I mean Donald Trump Jr., or as I call him, the variant. None of them would even fall into this category. So the substance of the defense is legal term, quite crappy. However, however, I do disagree with a lot of conservative thinkers who have noted the crappiness and say, I don't understand it. I don't understand why it's so crappy. Here's Charles Cook of the National Review on the editor's podcast reaching that conclusion. He finds it difficult to advance the best arguments in his own defense. He was never good at making the case for Donald Trump. He never allowed space to highlight his achievements. And what he is asking of his lawyers shows us that, not that I believed he would have, but he hasn't changed. And this was reminiscent of a general argument put forth by Kelly Ann Conway, who broke with Trump, I think it was like an hour and a half before the administration ended, and the whole thing came crashing down here. She was on the Bill Maher show. I think the real disappointment for people like me is that the last two months, let's just say from November 6th to January 6th, weren't spent mostly talking about the accomplishments, reviewing the accomplishments. He built the greatest economy we've had in pre-COVID. He built it? It was pretty much built. Okay, come on, Bill. Well, it was Bill, doing very well when he took over. Would you agree with fine, that? It was fine, but it did even better, and you know it. Yes, all those real and true accomplishments, which, as Mar noted, aren't actually real. Trump should be emphasizing those. To why make Kellyanne Conway seem perhaps palatable or hireable, if not lovable, to her own family? But Trump does not make these arguments, these so-called good arguments, the arguments right there that would have been killer arguments. Like Charlie Cook says, I guess he seems incapable of making those good, real arguments before the Senate. I disagree. I think Donald Trump knows what he's doing. He's not smart, but he is cunning. And he realizes good arguments that might convince a Rob Portman type do nothing for him, do nothing for his standing among the people he cares about. He fired his first legal team because they wouldn't go before the Senate and flat out argue the election was stolen. They perceived some reputational risk. Maybe even they perceived a legal risk. So he's got these new guys, and these new guys are all but arguing that. They're not arguing the election was flat out stolen. They're saying it's okay if the president said the election was stolen. And if you say those are false claims. I have a counter argument for that. We disagree. Donald Trump knows this will be a rare moment of national attention. He's been denied that attention. He won't have to rely on the OAN News Network. And he wants to say what he wants to say. And what he wants to say is that whacked out crap that he's been saying that inspires, nay, that incites his followers. And the blame for this goes to, well, obviously the Mar-a-Lago-based miscreant himself, but also those 45 Republican senators who took the time to signal to him, we're not going to convict you. So absent any risk of consequence, Trump can go pretty much whole hog with the reality denial that put their colleagues' lives in danger in the first place. So congratulations, you lot. Well played. Donald Trump knows what he's doing. As always, the answer is nothing good. 
He's going to do it, and he's being allowed to do it because Rand Paul thought it was extremely important to dispel any question of, should we create consequence for the Cretan from Queens? Well played, guys. And what's worse, I made you all listen to Kellyanne Conway for another 24 seconds of your life. But that's what you get in the good old U.S. Urfay. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Shana Roth, like Aung San Suu Kyi, has been charged with Section 8 of the Export-Import Law. Now, she's going to argue that it, at worst, is a violation of Section 9, an import-export crime. She hopes to nail them on this technicality, the them being the ruthless military junta. Margaret Kelly, just producer, just thinks it's weird whenever we say junta about the Burmese to say nothing of the Minamarians. Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast. Check the demonym, and it's Myanmar's. People from Myanmar are Myanmar's, me and Myanmar, down by the schoolyard. You know, the gist. You know, normally I wouldn't even poke light fun at a people's names or their country's names, though I might have a childish instinct to do so. But Myanmar, as a name, is actually seen as oppressive and an imposition to the freedom-loving Burmese. So what am I doing here? I am engaging in an act of subtle, international solidarity and subversion. Hero? It's a cloak I wear loosely, yet comfortably. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.